Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for man. <laughs> Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the links between Ireland, slavery, and the Caribbean, and we'll be finding out how Irish enslavers profited across all the major European slave economies. Last week, we brought you the extraordinary story of the Galway-born woman who became one of the greatest British codebreakers during the Second World War. We told you the history of the newly independent Irish state through its photographs and found out how younger sons made their way in Jane Austen's England. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. Tonight's show is on Ireland, slavery and the Caribbean. Ireland's connection to transatlantic slavery is poorly understood. There is relatively little awareness that Irish enslavers profited across all of the major European slave economies, or that some of the richest enslavers in the 18th century were Irish. Tonight's show explores these connections, inspired by a brilliant new collection of essays, which brings together experts from different disciplines to look at the period 1620 to 1830, the high point of European colonialism. The book is called Ireland, Slavery and the Caribbean, Interdisciplinary Perspectives. It's published in hardback by Manchester University Press and edited by Finola O'Kane and Kieran O'Neill. And to investigate the links between Ireland, slavery and the Caribbean, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Professor Finola O'Kane is Professor of Architecture at University College Dublin and is the co-editor of the volume Ireland, Slavery and the Caribbean, Interdisciplinary Perspectives. And she also has a new book just out, Landscape Design and Revolution in Ireland and the United States. And we're definitely going to have to bring you back to talk about that as well. Dr. Kieran O'Neill is Usher Associate Professor in 19th Century History at Trinity College Dublin and the Deputy Director of the Trinity Long Room Hub there and is the other editor of the volume. Professor David Dixon is Emeritus Professor of Modern History at Trinity College Dublin and is an expert on Ireland's place in transatlantic empires. And he has an essay in the volume, but the book is also dedicated to him and a wonderful inscription to a teacher, colleague and friend. And as someone who has also worked with David for many years, I can uh, wholeheartedly endorse those sentiments as well. You're all very welcome. But Finola, I might begin with you and a question about the beautiful cover of the book, because it's a striking image and it captures those links between Ireland, Jamaica and and some of these places in the Caribbean. Yes, it's a, an oil painting by Isaac Mendes Belisario of Kelly's Pen, which is just near Old Harbour in Jamaica. And it's one of a series of paintings that the Marquis of Sligo commissioned from the artist um, who spent a lot of his life in Jamaica in and around the 1820s. At the same time that he was commissioning also James Arthur O'Connor to paint a series of Westport House, which was the family's main house. Now, the Marquis of Sligo, the Brown family, owned an awful lot of Irish land, but they also owned substantial thousands of acres in Jamaica and they benefited from the sugar money that came back. Some of it was offloaded in Westport, most of it went to Liverpool. Um, So I always found it very interesting that when they were sitting in their grand rooms in Westport House, they had two domain series, one of Westport and the surrounds by O'Connor and then this other one of their colonial possessions. Um, Because usually what we find is that um, people become progressively more uncomfortable with their colonial possessions, particularly um, in the slave economies, um, as you move through the 19th century and as as the pressure for emancipation takes hold. So just that image of the Browns enjoying the visualisation, essentially, of their property. And it's also important because a lot of the records were progressively destroyed um, from the 17th century onwards as, as families became uncomfortable um, with that um, other economy. Um, and so we're, that's part of the reason for the interdisciplinary collection is that so many of the sources are maps or paintings or slightly off-axis sources that, that aren't standard documentary sources. And, and we need to use these to understand the history because it's almost, they almost forgot in a way that there were these very kind of potent 
examples of their property that, that break the narrative of emancipation that the Browns have always been advanced because they, they were um, involved in the emancipation in 1836 in Jamaica as the Lord Lieutenant or the Chief Governor. Um, so that narrative is broken by these paintings and that's why we put it on the cover. And Kieran, it is an act of reclamation. It's an act of maybe uncomfortable reclamation because it's bringing back stories and changing the narrative, as Fanola has suggested, that they're in ways that are perhaps going to be uncomfortable for some people. Yeah, I, I think um, I think the story of Irish involvement in the, the transatlantic slave economy it is um, it's a difficult one because it conflicts almost directly with our orthodox telling of Irish history in that we're. We're victims of colonisation, which of course is true, um, you know, over successive centuries um, from our neighbouring island. But what that masks, that very strong narrative we have about ourselves as as, as colonial victims is, I suppose, our complicity in, in a broader transatlantic story of, of the enslavement of others and, and the colonisation and, and exploitation of others. We don't like to talk about that very much. It's difficult history as it is for, for any European society. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I think you're right. It's, it's discomfort at the centre. And Fanola, what does it matter to have an interdisciplinary perspective? Why was it important to approach this volume in that way? Um, I think because it's a difficult history, different disciplines are at different stages along kind of the writing of it. So archaeologists have long been quite uncomfortable with material culture and with digging up, you know, combs and um, other things. And, And that's very valuable, although it's one of the absences in our volume. Unfortunately, we don't have the archaeologists' perspectives and, and, and they have advanced greatly in the United States in particular. But historical geographers bring uh, a very spatial perspective as well. And I think colonialism is essentially somewhat spatial. You know, it's Europe, quite a small continent, expanding into these, these enormous scales and using the techniques that were developed from survey and mapping and, and law, very powerfully law, to, to define the concepts by which you can own somebody and by which you can own a piece of land that the native communities in a way also own but haven't mapped or drawn correctly. So we, we needed to bring in those other documentary sources that geographers use so confidently um, which are maps and then art historians use images and then um, literature is very important in the volume as well because, it, because it's through novels that a lot of the harder stories were essentially teased out. Um, some of the ambiguities that people at home were starting to feel about the fact that there were these vast numbers of people that they never met who were sustaining their lifestyle at, in Ireland. Kieran, why now? Why is there such an interest in this as an area of history, a field of history now? Because, you know, for example, there's a wonderful new exhibition in the Epic Museum of Irish Emigration in Dublin. It's running until February next year and it's created by, well, your former PhD student, Dr. Catherine Healy. And it's on, it's called Entangle Islands uh, on the Irish and the Caribbean. There's a a wonderful lecture taking place in in Trinity in the Robert Emmett Theatre in the Arts Block at 6pm Wednesday, the 18th of October. Uh, Legacies of Slavery, Reckoning and Commemoration, a lecture by Vincent Brown from Harvard. And there's an introduction by the Chancellor of Trinity, Professor Mary McAleese. And uh, if people want tickets for that, just go to Eventbrite and tickets are are free, organised by the Trinity Colonial Legacies Project and the Trinity Long Room Hub, you know, two uh, groups you're you're closely involved in. Why is there this huge interest now in, in the legacies of slavery, in reckoning with what was going on? Yeah, I think there's two different answers. I mean, I, I always reference the work of Nene Rogers in an Irish context because her, her book in 2007 really opened up a whole field uh, of Irish uh, connections to slavery and, and anti-slavery. For a long time, Ireland had a, a more developed history, which is common in Europe, of, of abolitionism and anti-slavery and those kind of movements. And what we've seen, I suppose, in the last 10, 15 years is within academic history, we've seen lots lots of people coming to to, to, to a greater, deeper interest in Irish involvement across the French, the Spanish, uh, the British, the Danish, the Dutch empires. Uh, but we haven't always seen that translate into public interest. And I think what's happened, uh, and to give a kind of almost blither, simplistic response, is Black Lives Matter and, and a whole reckoning around um, the ongoing contemporary dynamics in, in the modern world that are the result of transatlantic slavery, uh, particularly in North America, but also in Europe and elsewhere in the world as well, South America and, and so on. So what we've seen is a, a, a vast public interest in it. Um, the, the, the volume itself comes out of a series of conferences that myself and Fanola ran in 2017-18. So you can certainly see the academic interest predates uh, BLM, George Floyd and 2020 and a sort of global reckoning around monuments 
uh, and so on. But I think the, the public's interest in it uh, um, is motivated by, by the reckoning that's that's come from the fallout around that. And it's wonderful to see Epic and, and Catherine Healy put together really, really smart and, and sensitive kind of exhibitions that, that explore these entangled Stories, I think entangled is a word you come back to all the time when you talk about Ireland and the Caribbean. But some people do get angry as well. Some people don't want to consider that Irish people were involved in slavery. They prefer the the more comfortable narrative of, of the Irish being oppressed and enslaved and the victims of colonialism and not being colonisers themselves. Yeah, to, to me... Uh, it's not a zero-sum argument. I mean, one doesn't invalidate the other. The Irish don't become not colonised because we talk about Irish involvement in the colonisation of others. So I, I think good historians and, and, and people who are interested in history in the wider public, I think they get that. There's room for both narratives and, and it's important that we talk about uh, Irish involvement in, in, in European settler colonialism particularly and, and reframe the way we think about the vast Irish diaspora in relation to that. I understand it's uncomfortable, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. David, the area of Atlantic history is something that you've been working on for many years and you only need to look at your your wonderful volume on Cork and South Munster, Old World Colony, where you explored some of these connections. And it is something that I think helps us to understand Irish history a lot better as well. I think the importance of 18th century Cork in the sort of transformation of Ireland is is kind of well documented, well understood. But uh, what perhaps has been missed. And I would uh, say even when I was doing my earlier work on Cork itself, I wasn't perhaps stressing strongly enough the way in which it is the growth of the Caribbean world economy, the growth of the British, the English, the French, uh, the Dutch, the Spanish colonies in the tropical world that really is the, the dynamo behind the growth of Cork uh, in the sense that Cork was facilitating uh, this extraordinary story the, in terms of the production, of, particularly of food, of foodstuffs that could be taken to the tropics that were consumed both by uh, European settlers and planters uh, and mariners, and uh, certainly in the case of the French Caribbean, uh, that, that the enslaved workers were consuming uh, Irish foodstuffs as well, mainly channeled through Cork. Not entirely, but Cork has about three quarters of the trade from much of the 18th century. And you begin your article very dramatically with the the great hurricane of 1780, you know, which was, I think, the deadliest uh, Atlantic hurricane in history and, and, and how there was a there were public subscriptions in Ireland and it really was showing the, the connections between uh, the two parts of the world. Yeah, it's an interesting sort of entry point uh, because in a way you can go through a lot of 18th century Irish uh, sources like newspapers and pamphlets and so on, and to have a very kind of uh, distant view of uh, the Caribbean world, sort of really wonder how far people in Ireland were uh, directly aware of what was going on in a place like Jamaica. Now, one can uh, quickly see that that's a bit of an illusion, uh, and um, as a historian William Hart showed some years ago, I mean, there were quite a lot of persons of African ancestry from the Caribbean on the streets of Dublin. Now, not not anything like what we found in Bristol or Liverpool, but nevertheless, there was a, a knowledge of that world. And it, this becomes much clearer in the 1780s and 90s uh, as the movement towards uh, the debate over, over abolition of the slave trade begins to well up in Britain. It certainly has strong echoes uh, in, in, in Ireland. So in a sense, the, the hurricane response is, is a kind of prelude to, to all of that. And how much trade was there between Ireland and the Caribbean? Because in your later part of the essay, talk about sugar and slavery, and of course they're the controversial ones, but looking at the first part, things like beef and, and foodstuffs, uh, because of course uh, various tariffs were, were controversial in Ireland and, and, and impacted on trade, but how much do we see going between them? Well, it's uh, a complicated story, but I mean, the, the, the simple fact is that for roughly 100 years, from the 1680s to 1780, uh, the option of Irish merchants to trade directly with the Caribbean uh, was strictly limited. Uh, it was somewhat uh, improved from the 1730s, but because of the so-called English Navigation Act, and uh, became British Navigation Act after 1707, the position of uh, Irish merchants wishing to trade directly with uh, Kingston or Bridgetown or wherever uh, was limited. But uh, that doesn't mean that there's a vast amount of Irish material going out 
on mainly English and French vessels uh, to the Caribbean. Uh, and one couldn't uh, imagine that if the Navigation Act had been uh, uh, removed uh, or amended earlier, uh, that one would have possibly had a, a greater role, direct role of Irish merchants in Caribbean commerce. Um, I mean, what's interesting is that before the Navigation Acts are uh, copper fastened in the 1680s, in other words, in the first kind of 50 years of this story, you do see Irish vessels out in the Caribbean in much greater numbers, at least around a place uh, like Antigua or Jamaica. Um, and it, 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 it increasingly from the 1680s, it's uh, English, Dutch, French uh, uh, shippers who are taking the Irish goods westwards. Uh, but that uh, that Irish uh, flow of goods is incredibly important in terms of maintaining particularly the, the European presence in the tropics in terms of uh, the vital proteins. And it's only much later that you see uh, North American sources for the foodstuffs of, of the Caribbean colonies uh, becoming important. Then come 1780 and the so-called free trade or the removal of the restrictions on uh, Irish Atlantic trade, at least within the British world, uh, you see great optimism that... Uh, the uh, Irish involvement in the Caribbean will suddenly become uh, much greater. In a sense, it all comes too late, although you do see uh, something of an involvement, particularly of Dublin and Belfast and, uh, and Derry uh, shippers in uh, Caribbean trade. That's a particularly interesting story uh, that comes in rather late in, in, in the wider picture. Fanula, it's interesting to look at architecture, like you've been saying earlier, because by looking at these design histories, uh, there's a question you pose in your article, did Ireland seem to be like Jamaica or Jamaica like Ireland? And and it is very much entangled and enmeshed. Yeah, I think um, certain families, you know, by sending out the younger sons and, and having spent a long portion of their lives in the Caribbean, um, where they defined as home was, was not clear. Um, I think what's also apparent is that many Irish people who jumped into the Caribbean also then changed identity maybe a few times as the islands changed empire and they changed languages. So Irish people shapeshifted around the, the Caribbean and in a way, because they were Catholic, they were if they were if they were Catholic, and many of them were, and I think this is part of the narrative that we need to correct, is that, you know, the Galway tribes in particular sent a lot of younger sons to the Caribbean. So it's not an ascendancy story. The Browns, for example, are, you know, the Marcuses of Sligo, but there were plenty of untitled middle class Irish families who benefited from trade. Um, so, but just to, you know, just to come back to that, this this shape shape-shifting potential. I think it's also learnt in Ireland, particularly by Catholics, you know, how to manipulate the law, how to just sail very close to the wind as to what, what I will obey, what I won't obey. And then, again, because of their vast networks in France and in Spain, you know, where the wild geese had gone, they can draw these networks into advancing them in the Caribbean. So they're they're working between islands, between empires and between family networks, which places them in a really powerful position um, to benefit from the Caribbean at this period when it was one of the wealthiest places in the world. I mean, it's still truly astonishing that Saint-Domingue or Haiti which we now know of as one of the poorest places in the world, was the wealthiest island in the world, creating the most amount of money for the French Empire um, through most of the 18th century. And Kieran, it's interesting what Fanola was saying there about identity, because identities are kind of unclear sometimes uh, when we look at this, that it's 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 not as, as certain that someone would identify as Irish or British or whatever. And that, that kind of adds to the, the, the ambiguity and confusion. Well, take, for example, uh, the French Empire in Saint-Domingue, Haiti, uh, that Fanola has just been talking about. I mean, you know, the Walsh family... Uh, based out of Nantes, um, of a PhD student, Holly Ritchie, working around this issue at the moment, that they're they're working on you know on behalf of the French, they're, they're second generation, sometimes first generation, second third generation Irish, very strong Irish links between the Walsh and the Shield families back to Ireland uh, and out to, to Haiti, where they eventually make the bulk of their money. These are slave traders. They're they're making an extraordinary amount of money from the French transatlantic slave trade. Um, and they're they're bringing most of it back to France, but some of it will will make its way back to Ireland as well. So how do you how do you sort of label a person like that? Um, you know, uh, my own chapter was on a, a figure called Lambert Blair, and he's a you know he's he's 
easily traversing between the British, the French, and, and eventually the Dutch Empire, making a fortune out of it, owning 25% of one of their colonies in Burbese at one point. But he's been in the Caribbean since he was a teenage pirate, uh, essentially. Um, so how do you how do you account for his identity? He dies in, in London. Um, you know, how Irish is he? How Irish are these people? Um, working out the percentages of that is really difficult, I think. Well, your article is called In Search of Excess and we're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we will be going In Search of Excess and finding out more, a lot more about the Blairs and about their gluttonous uh, lives and about their tyrannical lives as well and lots more besides. So stay with us here on News Talk. Welcome back to Talking History. Tonight we are talking about Ireland's slavery and the Caribbean and I'm delighted to be rejoined by my panel of experts, Professor Finolo. Kane, Dr. Kieran O'Neill, and Professor David Dixon. Kieran, your own article in search of excess, and about this really remarkable figure, Lambert Blair. And I'm interested as well about his is it his uncle, Sir James Blair, because when the compensation was given in 1834, he was at the very top of the pile, uh, mainly thanks to uh, Lambert's plantations. Right, yeah, James is a nephew, actually, and Lambert is his uncle. Um, and James is an MP. Um, uh, a thoroughly kind of it seems to me disinterested MP I think he only speaks twice in the House of Commons and both in favour both times in favour of the slave trade so he really was a totally kind of uh, selfish individual in this sense um, so I was interested in the Blairs because I thought uh, let's take a taste a, a case study of an Irish slave owner so let's go one of the biggest ones on record at the time of compensation uh, and a Lambert Blair uh, was a figure who died in his mid-40s he was uh, dead at 1815 uh, before um, compensation, but all of his his money transfers to James, and he gets he gets the payout uh, in the eighteen thirties. The reason I thought Lambert was really interesting was because he really very little was known about him. He's this fantastically wealthy individual who, at the time of his death, uh, is in control of about a quarter of an entire Dutch colony in, in South America, Berbice. Um, and I was amazed by his his life story because you know he comes from a, a kind of a mid ranking merchant family in Newry uh, and somehow manages to make his way to a tiny little island called St Eustatius in the Caribbean uh, by the age of 14, 15, where he witnesses one of the most famous battles uh, under Rodney um, as a teenage trader um, and, and, and comes to the public's attention at that moment. And then he drops out of public attention for, for, for a long time. And, and really what, what I learned from trying to trace Lambert Blair's money and his life story was it's very, very hard to, to trace the biography of these individuals who were at various points working between empires, self-consciously as pirates in the case of the, of the Blairs. They were absolutely illegal uh, traders. And trying to piece together the snatches of information you get where they turn up here on a French island, they turn up here on a British island, they, they end up on a Dutch uh, you know, it, it was a real challenge. It's a wonderful story and a wonderful piece of detective work, precisely because there are those uh, mysteries in the story. Like at one point, he's in debt. And then, you know, almost the next you see him, he's hugely wealthy. So uh, you have to really try and draw the dots between uh, those things. And uh, and, and during uh, the, what became known as the Rodney Raid, uh, it's part of Lambert Blair's testimony that's used by Edmund Burke in the British House of Commons. That's right. It seems that um, Burke became interested in, in the case of St. Eustatius, which was an island that was famous for being almost a sort of a free trade depot. Uh, it was most famous for helping to provision... Uh, during the American Revolution. So it was a real thorn in the side of the British, uh, this kind of free trade pirate island uh, that you found a few Irish operators working out of. Um, yeah, so Burke picked up the case and, and spoke about it in the House of Commons. He seems to have drawn on, on some testimony from Blair and the other traders. They were interested in recovering their losses because Rodney cleaned out their warehouses essentially and stole all their stuff, which was stolen in the first place. So let's not feel too sorry for them. Um, so they wanted compensation for that. Burke took up the cause. It's not clear that Blair ever received any compensation. I would say he certainly didn't deserve any, um, but but he continues and carries on. It doesn't It doesn't interrupt his... His, uh, his trading life, he, he'll pop up again very soon in the 1890s. Another of the mysteries is that we don't exactly know how he got to own so many slaves. At a certain point, he owned a huge number of slaves, but it's not entirely clear how he acquired them. Yeah, and, I, and I, there's still a lot I don't know about Blair's story. So we have a very, very small cachet of, of, of source material available in Prony, and there's some more in American universities uh, related to his older brother. Um, and then there's some in, 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 the, in the Dutch archives, uh, which relate to the colony itself. We know he has a vast number of slaves in Berbice towards the end of his life, and we, we find him there in the very early 19th century, living 
I mean, like a lord would be putting it too, uh, you know, too conservatively. He's he's living absolutely fat on the land of of this sort of you know colony of of misery. I mean, he has a, a huge number of his enslaved people were were dying in Berbice. It was one of the um, it's present day Guyana. It was one of the the biggest attrition rates in the early nineteenth century of any colony of enslaved uh, people. So. So he's living fat in the land. That's where we find these travel accounts of him, where he pops up in sort of full technicolor as this kind of gluttonous lord of of of, of all he surveys. Yeah, as people visit the area, they they write accounts and they leave these anecdotes and stories, and you get a sense of the of the the life of excess he's living, but the misery that he's inflicting on everyone else, and it's drinking to excess. There's all these tyrannies, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised that he died in his forties, given the lifestyle he was. Living. Well, Lady Nugent had this great line. I think I use it in the chapter where she she said that the men of the Caribbean, you know, drank like porpoises and ate like cormorants. Um, and there's a bit of that in Blair. You know, he, he absolutely is 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 living like that. And I think what's really interesting about Blair is, you know, his only funeral marker is in Richmond in London, and it doesn't say anything about him being Irish. And I think that sort of speaks to this wider pattern that Fanola and I found as, we, as we've as we worked on this topic and, and worked with people as they constructed their chapters. Irish enslavers uh, usually reinvest their money in the home counties or in London. Rare, it's rare enough that that money comes back to Ireland. So we don't have this physical trace uh, in the same way as you have in England and Scotland of that money coming back. And that's partly because people were keen to, to cloak their Irishness for all sorts of reasons and to reinvest back in back in London. And you end the article by saying that he's a person we must admit to and that this is a, a reclamation project. It's an unwanted reclamation project, but one that you believe is an important one. Yeah, and, and again, not to sound too kind of virtuous or, or sanctimonious about it, I, I think it's not it's not consistent or in any way um fair of us to uh to to decry the colonization of Ireland as we do, you know, quite rightly in Irish history and then write out our part in the colonisation of others. And it's sort of where I'm coming from with, with reclaiming a figure like Blair and saying, well, we have to admit that he's Irish, even if he didn't want to be known as such at certain times. Because, you know, it's possible to have this life emerging from a small town, Newry, in Ireland as a teenage trader to end up this figure. That's a pathway that was possible for Irish people. And, you know, I think we need to know more about those pathways. Fanola, you see it today in the 21st century, reputation laundering and people, uh, oligarchs and others, uh, when they when they have the money, using some of it to try and, uh, you know, clean up uh, unsavoury parts of their past. Is there an element of that going on here where uh, people... Well, maybe they obscure the elements that they're uncomfortable with or that they're because they're using some of the money for good works that bits of it get ignored. Or maybe it was just that people didn't have an interest in these areas. Well, I think, yes, a lot of this um, history would have been successfully hidden by the people who enslaved others if the UCL project Legacies of British Slave Ownership um, in a way hadn't happened. But before that, if Daniel O'Connell hadn't asked those questions on the floor of the House of Commons, which revealed the scale of British compensation um, and to whom it was paid. And and it's from those, that, those very economic facts, like how big a compensation did you receive if you owned 200 slaves in, you know, uh, Demerara? And, you know, and families... In a way, we have a very clear picture of how much money went into some accounts at that point. And that has made it very difficult to hide these histories. And in other European countries, the the French, for example, have recently digitised um, their compensation records. I think comparing empires is, is a very, is good fun, basically, compared to doing traditional Irish history, where, you know, the, the presence, just the binary between England, it's so relentless, you know, Britain and Ireland over and over again. What this history also allows you to do is to start comparing Ireland with other empires and particularly, I think, the French Empire, which also had a big compensation scheme, which was slightly morally better because they compensated only really for built property. They didn't compensate people for the enslaved people, probably because of French revolutionary principles. Um, and so, but but a lot of Irish people received compensation through the French scheme, principally the branches in France. But that must have, in a way, trickled back to Ireland in some form as well. So I think the, this these large streams of European kind of complicity, how the money came back, who benefited, 
why certain people, certain oligarchs in Europe have been powerful oligarchs for hundreds of years, you know, leading with the royal families and the aristocratic families. You know, there there is a slight feeling of reckoning that we, we have to account for the essential inequality of society, not only in the Caribbean, although that's where the greatest inequality was visited on people through matrilineal chattel slavery. But at home, there's also consistent inequality. And some of that is very old. And maybe now is the time to write that history as well. But Ireland is in all the European countries are involved, many European families, and and it affects the structure of society today. David, your work is really fascinating when you get onto the sugar and slave dimensions of, of trade. And uh, when you look at someone like Dennis Kelly, who you show his story was unusual, but it wasn't unique. No, one of the things that strikes me, you know, trying to explore this whole area is that, um, I mean, there are an awful lot of hidden stories that we cannot hope to uh, excavate. In other words, while we can uh, see great success stories in, in, in commercial terms, like, like the Kellys, who uh, ultimately become the, the owners of, of Westport and all that. Um, there are so many other stories of uh, fortunes lost or of people who died, uh, Europeans, Irish who died, uh, within a year or two going out. In other words, while there's a documentary problem in terms of, if you like, the transnational character of this story, there's also a documentary problem because there is uh, so many cases of failure uh, that uh, one tends to be perhaps uh, struck by the successes and ignore the uh, the amount of, of human loss and misery that goes on. And this applies right across to the, the story of, of sugar because one area, that, uh, one island that was, uh, has been in a sense in the uh, in focus for quite a long time in Irish uh, history writing is Montserrat, uh, which uh, you know was uh, from the 17th century uh, a particularly uh, Irish settled island, and uh, an island that, that certainly turned to um, sugar and to slave, uh, slave production early on. But there, what's interesting is that in the, in the early history of Montserrat, say up to 1700, uh, there's a very large number of small producers involved in sugar, uh, particularly in, in, in sugar and partly in tobacco. And then gradually it becomes uh, a story of a small number of powerful families uh, and of larger numbers of slave pens. And a lot of the kind of uh, the other white, or the Irish population uh, dies out, drifts away, goes to uh, mainland America. And that is replicated elsewhere. In other words, this uh, tendency for uh, production, for, for wealth, for control, uh, to become increasingly concentrated. And that's certainly true in Jamaica itself. But it, in, in, in that process, there are, there are countless numbers of people of Irish extraction who are involved and who uh, are often the ones who uh, simply uh, don't gain uh, in wealth or in any other way. Uh, I mean, maybe we shouldn't uh, feel too deeply for them, given uh, the much greater pain uh, in the world around them in, 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 with slavery. But it is interesting that you can see this process in the 17th century of relatively large numbers coming in uh, with very little and perhaps uh, going one or two guns up the ladder uh, and then falling back and just a small number through chance or good fortune uh, or through uh, sheer uh, greed and brutality uh, succeeding and succeeding in a way that leaves a historical trace. And Dennis Kelly is a fascinating figure because his father, you know, also Dennis Kelly, an Irish-born lawyer, but, uh, and then Dennis, the second Dennis, born in Jamaica and ends up becoming Chief Justice of Jamaica and becomes as a slave owner, but a major figure in in the in the legal world there. I mean, the the number of office holders of Irish extraction is not huge, but there's a significant number. Indeed, uh, one of our chapters in, in the book, uh, David Fleming's one on, on, on uh, Coote, explores you know one of uh, the uh, governors of Jamaica who's uh, of Irish extraction. But it, it's, as you say, more interesting to uh, even to look at some of those who are uh, in, who are Creole. Irish Jamaicans are Irish Caribbean figures who uh, become very powerful in islands like Jamaica and Antigua. And indeed, you know, the Antiguan story is particularly interesting because uh, one senses that you know, a number of the most powerful people on the island there in the late 18th century uh, you know, thought themselves at least of Irish extraction. I'm thinking of families like the Martins. Uh, and there, for, for a while at least, I mean, Antigua has uh, both very close connections with Ireland commercially, but also it is a place... Uh, that seems to be more important for uh, 
Irish migration uh, relatively late in the 18th century. Uh, but certainly, yes, I mean, the Kellys uh, and others in, in the Jamaican Assembly are uh, intriguing figures. And the influence of um, Irish legal practice and Irish uh, parliamentary tradition on Jamaica is one that touched on in, in, in Aaron Graham's chapter, which I think is uh, particularly uh, intriguing. Fanola, what about the question of those then who are Irish or of Irish descent who are fundamentally opposed to slavery? And you see, uh, like even, for example, the second Marquis of Sligo, who, you know, he becomes governor of Jamaica, who's, you know, hailed by some as the emancipator of the slaves because he's the governor there when when they are freed. But I suppose it's it, there's more of maybe shades of grey than than just a simple narrative. Yeah, I think there was a move in the you know early 19th century to clean up the story, and and there are strange publications in the 19th century which try to try to rationalise slavery as something that was you know semi natural, and we've moved on from that. And the Browns were definitely doing that, or, or trying to appropriate some of that virtue um, during the period of emancipation. But again, when you go back to the maps and and you look at the changing maps of Jamaica, you know, yes, they were emancipated, but then they were apprenticed. The slaves were apprenticed back for seven years. So the the names of the enslaved start to appear on the new maps that are made following emancipation, but they're now paying rent, you know. So, so they haven't, there was no movement to kind of give them land. All the benefits that Ireland had in the 19th century to, to let the peasant class essentially become free or to... And it's the same in the southern United States. You know, freeholding is not... Apprenticeship is not the same as essentially giving people the means to feed themselves. So, the again, if you just go back to the money, the Marquis of Sligo was... OK, he wasn't... He, they weren't still enslaved, but he was now getting rents from Jamaica. So, in a way, he was just... In, in, what is imposed on Jamaica then is the classic European tenant-landlord relationship coupled with apprenticeship, you know, which keeps people basically working for free for another, you know, seven years. And there's a long legacy of of kind of exploitation, say, exploitation and different forms of European exploitation. So in a way, it's kind of, oh, we can't get away with enslavement anymore. So we'll, we'll invent something new that's called apprenticeship. And in the southern United States, it, it's, you know, another form. So, so Europeans have a really long legacy of, of changing direction and, and you know, using European legal systems and mapping systems and all these systems just to impose on the native communities or the enslaved communities another set of, you know, hurdles that they're going to have to jump um, and that they're going to have to adapt to and giving them no real means of um, freeing themselves financially which would then, you know, allow them to educate themselves and do all the things that the Irish were eventually allowed to do, you know, uh, and which we benefit for. But we should understand, we should really understand, you know, just how appalling European colonisation was. Well, tonight we are talking about Ireland, slavery and the Caribbean. We're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, we'll be exploring the legacy and the impact of these connections. So stay with us here on News Talk. Welcome back. We're talking history and we're talking about Ireland's slavery and the Caribbean, inspired by a brilliant new collection of essays, which brings together experts from different disciplines to look at the high point of European colonialism. The book is called Ireland, Slavery and the Caribbean, Interdisciplinary Perspectives, published by Manchester University Press and edited by Finola O'Kane and Kieran O'Neill. And we do have Finola and Kieran in studio tonight. And we're also joined by Professor David Dixon, Emeritus Professor of Modern History at Trinity College. Dublin. David, I want to ask you about the use of the term slavery in Irish nationalism then in the in the 1790s and beyond because in your in your article you reference you know Burke and Theobald Wolfetone who uses that uh, th- th- that kind of terminology going back to you know Swift and the Isle of Slaves and is it that we see that the slavery and the and the and the campaigns against slavery are impacting on Irish nationalism so that they're they're incorporating, they're appropriating the language because it's very effective language to use. Yeah, it's a it's, it's a fascinating uh, thing, the, the way in which there is a kind of um, leaking across of, of of two great political debates. Uh, I, I mean, the debate over the abolition of the slave trade and the, uh, the use of the of the word emancipation, ultimately, I suppose, of of, of biblical uh, inspiration. Uh, 
is coming to the fore in the 1780s at uh, roughly the same moment that uh, the debate over Catholic relief, which becomes then denominated as Catholic emancipation, is going as well. Certainly the concept that in some ways Irishmen are slaves in in a, in a, a legal sense because of the legislative restrictions on, uh, on the Irish Parliament is something that uh, goes back to Molyneux and to Swift. Uh, and the interesting question is how far is this, to some extent, uh, rather kind of forced analogy of, of slavery uh, sufficient to, to some extent, to, to push to one side the debate on uh, slavery and emancipation uh, in Ireland. In other words, the, the debate on the more fundamental enslavement of people becomes, to some extent, confused with the, the kind of essentially the legal and constitutional debate over uh, Catholic rights. But what is striking is, you know, you do get within Dublin and Belfast uh, certainly a great positive reception of their abolitionist arguments uh, in relation to the slave trade in the late 1780s. And you get some, but not by any means all, of the radical figures who become associated with the United Irishmen uh, willing to uh, adopt uh, the if like abolitionist positions, but of course the greatest, the temporary sort of champion of abolition would be Edmund Burke himself from 1788, although he uh, retreats from that position in the the early 1790s. But it is certainly true that if you look uh, the comments of the, the uh, ex-slave uh, Obadiah Equiano, who comes to Ireland, uh, you know he he talks uh, you know. And, uh, around 1790, in, in terms of 1791, in terms of the a very positive reception he gets in Dublin and particularly Belfast, goes to Cork as well. But I think it initially it's Quaker families who have connections with some of the, the Quaker abolitionists in England who seem to be the first to take this up, uh, and then it becomes more uh, associated really with a mainstream radicalism. Uh, not least with uh, the editors of the, the the United Irish newspapers like the uh, the Northern Star in Belfast uh, and the Cork Journal in, in, in Cork with uh, Dennis Driscoll. Uh, that, in a sense, is lost sight of uh, as the Irish crisis kind of uh, ex- uh, grows in the course of the 1790s, and it's complicated to some extent by the the shock, the, the stories, of the, the kind of sh- shocking events in Saint-Domingue, in the, the Great Rebellion that is, if you like, the precursor to the establishment of Haiti, and, and the kind of representations of that in uh, sort of the Irish newspapers, I think, in a sense, kind of uh, halts a lot of the arguments. But what is interesting, nonetheless, is that you can see uh, a kind of afterlife uh, of, of that uh, discussion on uh, abolition going on in the Union and the immediate post-Union period. Um, but I, I'm not sure really how far one can sort of say that the kind of debate on post, post-Union debate on uh, Catholic emancipation to some extent uh, neuters the, the interest in, in uh, abolition. Certainly, uh, it, it makes it very much a second-order issue, whereas what really uh, focuses certainly political minds for the, the next 20 years is Catholic emancipation, not Fanolo, when we're talking about the legacies and we're talking about the impact, how should we view all of this? You've got a very striking description of, you know, the slag, the Browns, where, you know, really Jamaica and Ireland and their properties are just part of a of a huge sprawling property portfolio. And when you see it in those terms, it, it brings home that, you know, there isn't an emotional connection, that this is really about profit. This is really about their own power, prestige and wealth. Well, I think one of the great geniuses of, if you can call it that, of the plantation system is the degree to which the actual nasty or upsetting jobs were were apportioned to others very quickly, especially by wealthy families. So you get this whole structure of kind of agents and overseers and lawyers in Jamaica who are managing kind of European portfolios. And what that enables Europeans to do is really not to see what is being done in their name and, and in a way not to know um, so the Browns d- do that. You know, they have their agents. Sometimes they're family cousins. You know, poorer family cousins might be sent out to manage part of the portfolio. Not that dissimilar, actually, to wealthy families today. Um, so they can sit at home in, in Westport House and, and not see what's happening. And I think that displacement, you see it, you know, it's a form of absenteeism, I think, which the Irish, again, are, are familiar with. Um, that you 
essentially absent yourself from from your property so that you can become in a way less complicit in what's going on in the ground, particularly the violence, the, the innate and horrific violence of the plantation system. So they could um, imagine, and it must have been comfortable in a way, um, that, that it was a bit like Ireland, you know, that it was a similar kind of system um, and that, you know, that everything maybe was in that grand European tradition was being improved slowly. It might be, you know, there might be upsetting bits about it, but they were going to be improved gradually. And I think this is the real genius of of European colonisation, is just to get out when the going is good and leave other people to do the job for you. The Dutch did it brilliantly very early on when they just moved into insurance and, well, you know, money managing. And then all the European empires do it to a degree. And tracing, I think, those networks of of, you know, landlord at home, then, you know, cousinage and lawyers and agents and all these people. It runs through Jamaica, the Archdeckney family in the most profitable Plantain Valley, um, which is really quite French, actually, the way they develop it, because it's very flat and they use irrigation systems and dikes and it's not very picturesque. So it doesn't actually get covered in the tourist literature and there are very few images of it, which is helpful in a way about the forgetting as well, because if you've no pictures, then, you know, you can't, you can, in a way, you can't be published in a in an increasingly visual culture, you know, that leads up to things like the London Illustrated News. You know, the public are looking for pictures. And if you can control the pictures and make them look picturesque and pleasant and where everyone is kind of looks a bit like a European peasant, you know, and is rusticated or a dairymaid or something, then you can forget um, and not see the, the true horror of the plantation system. So I think the Browns are, are an example of doing that. But I think all European absentees, and there were hundreds and thousands in the, by the 19th century, are, are essentially doing that in some way. Kieran, I always enjoy reading the acknowledgements of books as well. And Fanola and yourself have, have mentioned family members. And of course, your two daughters, Orla and Alva, are there. And I'm, I'm sure they love seeing their names in the, in, in the book. But I'm wondering, you know, your daughter's same age as my children. I'm wondering when they're in school, when they're um, looking at this area in 20 years, I wonder what the world will look like. How will Irish people be thinking about our colonial legacies, our our connections. And I suppose I'm really asking, where do you think the scholarship will go from here? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think we, we can see a lot of really, really exciting graduate work happening. So I, I do think in 10 years' time, there'll be a lot more published on it. I mean, I'm, I'm aware of really good work that's happening in Cuba and um, South America. There's a, a lot more work being done on Louisiana and sort of like the, the, the Southern American states and colonies as well. I think what will follow this kind of outpouring of public interest in the in 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 the the topic is is increased graduate interest, and I also think Irish history is at this really interesting crossroads where we're emerging from a sort of period of centenaries and revolution focused history, and I do think there's now greater space after 2022-23 to explore kind of further back into these deeper legacies. And we can see right now in history as uh, in general, there's a real, real interest in settler colonialism, in colonial legacies. Uh, It's not going anywhere. It looks like it's here for the short to medium term. And I hope that will have a big impact on Irish history. And in a way, uh, Fanola, it challenges the the cosy narrative of Ireland that I suppose we do like to present to the rest of the world. You can trust us because we're a, a small country, we're neutral, we we were oppressed ourselves. So whether it's in the UN or uh, whatever field, you know, you can rely on us. And I suppose it does complicate that story considerably. Yeah, but it is part of our other identity, which we're also, I suppose, advancing in, in you know, after Brexit, which is that we're Europeans fundamentally, you know, um, we come from this these particular shores. Ireland is caught somewhere, I think, between the United States and Europe, particularly around this period, because we have things like plantation, which is not general in Europe. So we have the spatial models that allow us maybe to talk to other plantation landscapes in a way and com- and share a spatial sense with them. And the long history, if you like, of um manipulating the British Empire and being subversive in various ways, which can, you know, form a uniting um, way of seeing, if you like, with with other colonised nations without diminishing the particular very serious traumas of their history. But I think advancing our European, using more languages, I think is also very important in Irish history, 
not only our own language, but also acknowledging that many Irish people in the past spoke French and Spanish and Dutch and Danish when they needed to. And so we need to use the archives of those countries a lot more than we do now. And Kieran, finally, there's a wonderful article by Sandrine Indahiro, who's Rwandan Irish, and uh, her article is entitled, you know, Where Are You Actually From? And it's about racial issues in an Irish context and about how, you know, perhaps the people who talk about how you can't be black and Irish should perhaps read this volume and read more of their history and to see these connections and uh, read about how the racial inferiority stereotypes were imposed on the Irish for so long and you know to see then Irish people try and and copy those same things is really just falling into that same trap. Sandrine's uh, chapter is really important for a number of reasons. We asked her to write this. Uh, she's a she's a PhD student at University of Limerick, and we had seen some of her early publications based on her own identity and her positionality in relation to her her study and and her life experience in Ireland so far as somebody who is both black and Irish, who identifies as Rwandan um, and Irish at the same time. So she speaks really, really, in really interesting ways about that identity, but also how that identity is frequently challenged by people uh, who, uh, in some cases, are kind of willfully ignorant of, of I suppose, Irish histories in, in, in colonial environments. And so, and so what, what Sandrine has experienced and what she speaks to in, in this uh, chapter where, where she talks about uh, her title even is, is where are you really from? Which is a, a question that somebody with her positionality in Ireland sometimes challenged with. I, I suppose what, what she's generally speaking to is uh, an, an increasingly diverse Ireland that has to be able to cope with and also understand that its past was more diverse uh, and more complex than we, than we generally relate. Um, and that that has present consequences, especially for people who come in uh, or have grown up in Ireland with a black Irish kind of positionality. And I think she's, it's a really terrific read. Well, I think that's an excellent note on which to end our discussion tonight on Ireland, slavery and the Caribbean. My thanks to my brilliant panel of experts, Professor Finola O'Kane from University College Dublin, Dr. Kieran O'Neill from Trinity College Dublin and Professor David Dixon, Emeritus Professor of Modern History from Trinity. And the volume is called Ireland, Slavery and the Caribbean, Interdisciplinary Perspectives, uh, edited by Finola and Kieran. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to Marisa Sullivan, my producer, to Peter Malloy on Sands. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been talking history. Good night.